Our read scripture lesson this morning is the third chapter of 2 Peter. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. In 1054, the most famous divorce in history took place. It was the divorce of the Eastern and Western Christian Church. For the first time in history, the Church of Christ was in fact clearly split. The details of that split, if you know history, 
you tend to think about the big issue as being what's called the soliloquy in the uh, Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed did not at one time say that the Son proceed that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. It just said the Spirit proceeded from the Father. The addition of the words and of the Son, which in Latin is soliloquy, caused a division in the church that remains to this day. Now, uh, for most people, most followers of Christ, the issue here seems pretty esoteric. And they would wonder, why did this split happen? I mean, that seems like a major, major thing over what is kind of a minor theological issue. Well, things have been brewing for a long time, and it wasn't just the issue of the creed. There were a number of things that ultimately got under people's skin and led to this terrible schism. There was the question of papal authority. The church by this time had become Episcopalian in its government. It had bishops and higher bishops and metropolitans and whatever offices they hold going up and down. But the Eastern Church felt that at the top of the food chain was not one man, but a council of patriarchs. There were uh, a number of these, the bishops of very famous churches. In council, this should be the highest government body of the church, they thought. In the West, they believed that the top of the food chain was one guy. He was called the Pope, which means Papa, and he was the head of the Christian church. There was also the issue of idolatry. The East felt that the Western church had become terribly idolatrous in that they focused their worship towards statues. The East couldn't understand how such idolatry could possibly be uh, tolerated given that scripture talked so badly about idols the East didn't use idols, they used paintings that they would direct their worship towards. That was totally different than an idol, and they just couldn't understand why the West would go that one step further and make statues. We Protestants would have trouble figuring out the difference here, but that was significant to them. There was the question of purgatory. In Roman theology, the West believed that you really kind of had to work your sins off. Whatever sins you had committed, honestly, you got to really pay back for that at some point. And given the way human beings are, uh, all of us mostly, not all of us, but mostly all of us, we die with sins we haven't worked off, and we got to do something about that. So the Western Church said there was a spiritual place called Purgatory where God beat us up for a long time, and then ultimately we paid our dues and we went to heaven. The Eastern Church said, yeah, I don't really see that in Scripture. That's not there. But the most interesting issue between them, which is generally not talked about today, but it is a difference between East and West, is the matter of marriage. In the Western Church, it is assumed that you are married for this life. But marriage is only for this life. It's even a sacrament in their way of thinking. But once you done, you done. 
you're not married anymore. There's no marriage commitment. Uh, in eternity, you won't be married. In the Eastern Church to this day, that's not what's taught. In the Eastern Church, they teach that what happens in time echoes into eternity, and one of those things is marriage. Marriage is for them an eternal state, and they point to the fact that right at the beginning of time, and in the Bible, you have a marriage. You have Adam, but he's by himself, and God says, it's really not good for man to be alone. So he creates a helper for him, and Adam is not fallen. He is not sinful. He is not subject to the curse. This is all before any of that happens. And so right at the beginning of time, you have a marriage. And at the end of time, you also have a marriage. The great wedding supper of the Lamb is a wedding supper. There's a marriage taking place. And it is, in fact, King Jesus who's getting married. So bookends of the scripture are marriage. That seems very significant. That seems like something God wanted in perfection before the fall. And so the East taught that marriage is an eternal thing. The Western Church said, well, that's very interesting, but there's a passage of Scripture that doesn't seem to back that. You can find it in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but the fullest account is from Matthew chapter 22, and so I'm going to use that. It's Matthew 22, verse 23 through 33. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. The Mosaic Law does say that. It's Leverite marriage. Uh, it is important in the Mosaic Law that the name of God's people continue. Uh, you have a brother who dies. He never had children, but he has a wife. Well, you marry the wife, and the first child is your brother's, legally. So they've got that correct. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. It's a very clever question. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees... When you read about the Sadducees, you need to realize you're basically reading about people who are exactly the same as your typical PCUSA or Episcopal Church in the United States kind of minister. They don't really believe nothing. Liberals throughout history don't really believe anything of substance at all. And the Sadducees are no different. They don't believe that there's life after death. The resurrection is something that completely can't happen. And so they're challenging Jesus not really based on marriage. They're basically trying to say, look, the idea of eternal life is utterly absurd because what about all these marriages? How would this work? Well, Christ responds with 
Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So, in context, we're talking about can eternal life happen? Liberals say no. Jesus says there is a resurrection of the dead. The scriptures teach it. The power of God makes it possible. And in fact, if God talks about us in present tense when we're not living on earth, we nevertheless have to be in present tense somewhere because God's not a liar. God is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to be somewhere for God to be their God. For our own question, though, the West says, well, look at the text. Jesus says, um, ain't going to be no marriage. They won't be giving in marriage nor being given in marriage, but they will be, quote, like the angels in heaven. And uh, it's generally acknowledged that the angels don't have wives. That's something that was given to humankind alone. So done deal, right? Well, the Eastern Church reads its Bible, maybe not well, but it does read it. And they have some responses to that. They say, well, no, what you're missing here, it's not that angels aren't married. It's that human beings right now give their daughters in marriage or they take a daughter in marriage, which is the language that Jesus uses. It's transaction among human beings, but the angels in heaven obey God just right to the letter, and God arranges everything for them, and they're willing to let that happen. Human beings aren't like that, and we are now in a world that's cursed, and we, we're rebellious, and uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I would have been... I would have been probably rebellious if somebody had said, okay, now you're 14, here's your wife. You never really met her, but uh, here you go, here's your wife. Um, might even have kicked against the goads if God did it, because I'm a sinful human being. And the East says that's what's being talked about. It's not that uh, we'll be like angels that will be sexless. Men will be men and, men will, and women will be women. And in fact, there will be marriage because marriage begins and ends the story and Christ is in marriage. The deal is that all the human working out of things won't be taking place. While I was in seminary, uh, I was at a reformed Episcopal seminary and Episcopalianism kind of borders Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And because of that, you know, winds from those areas kind of blew in from time to time. And one morning I walked into class and the seminarians were uh, badgering um, the professor. Uh, is it possible? Is it true that marriage could in fact be eternal? And you could tell from their faces and the way they were talking, they really hoped it was true because these particular seminarians were just rightly engaged and they were kind of walking but not touching the floor. They were getting married, 
and everything was going to be just really wonderful, and they just hoped that marriage would be eternal. But when they asked Sutton that, my friend Fuchs, who had been married and whose wife left him while she was pregnant with their first child, looked at Ray and dropped his head to the desk and said, oh, God, I hope not. Kind of depends upon where you're at, I guess. Uh, but it's fascinating as a question. I guess you can come down on whatever side you want, because if you look at the Reformed Confessions, this isn't anything that we actually confess in, like, the Savoy Declaration. But the, the East and the West, and even in the case of the Sadducees, in a very negative way, uh, underlying everything that they're thinking about and talking about is the question... What is the next reality going to be like? How similar is it going to be to the one we have today? And the question of marriage comes up, depending upon who you happen to be. Is that going to be something that lasts, or is that going to be something that goes by the wayside? What, what is the next life going to be like? Well, liberals say there won't be one. In fact, liberals make religion only a matter of this life. It is a matter of learning to be a better person here and now because you will not be a person anymore. Uh, underneath everything liberal, that's the assumption. But we are not liberals. We believe what Christ says, and Christ says there will be a resurrection, there will be another world. What will it be like? How different will it be? Well, according to the Apostle Peter, it's going to be pretty different. In verse 7 of our text, Peter says, The heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, but they are reserved for fire, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In verse 10 through 11, we read, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let's break that down. The world that's going to come is going to go through a pretty intensive transformation. You have fire, and fire is referenced over and over and over again. I'm a Calvinist minister. I'm not used to preaching fire and brimstone. But I don't have any choice at this point because the text itself keeps referring to fire, fire, fire. It's going to be a moment of judgment. It's going to be a moment of perdition, which is a very nice way of saying people are going to go into eternal damnation. It is a time when, quote, the heavens will pass away. This is not the only time we find that image in Scripture. Uh, in some of the Old Testament prophets, in the book of Revelation, 
the the sky itself rolls up like a scroll. The the the, the entirety of the heavens pass away. Uh, that's the language here as well. The elements melt. The elements, the base stuff which reality is made of, it melts, and it melts with fervent heat, going back to that fire. Everything in the earth is, quote, burned up. And here is an, an interesting textual variant in the text. If you are reading from a New King James or a modern English version or a King James, what I just read is the phrase that you'll find. The world is burned up. The, the, the Greek term there means to burn down to the ground, to consume wholly. It's the word for something is so consumed by fire that it's turned to ashes. If you read from a uh, ESV or an ASV or an NIV or something like that, it doesn't say that it's burned up. It says, quote, that it is, um, what do I got here? Oh, yeah, laid bare. And underneath that term is a Greek term which literally means, quote, to find, end quote. But it, it's, it's a word for examination where you literally break something down to the smallest parts you can possibly get it to, and you look at all the very small parts because you find everything about everything about this thing. Um, it may not be that terribly big of a difference. Both seem to be incredibly destructive, um, but it is there. One has everything turned to ash. One has everything broken down to its component molecules. That is, regardless, a pretty amazing transformation. Um, and then there's going to be a rebuilding. According to verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The term new is kind of significant. There are two Greek terms where you have the concept of newness, probably more, but there's actually two that are significant. The first one is the word kainos, and it means new in quality, new and different. It usually involves bringing in a superior innovation or advance or corresponds to the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. The other Greek word from which we get the word new is neos. You can hear the connection. That means new in time, recent, young. Unlike kainos, it may have exactly the same ingredients as that which it replaces, corresponds to the word allos, which means another of the same kind. Well, everywhere in this passage where the word new is used, it is the first one, kainos. This is something absolutely, absolutely new. Something arises out of those ashes. Something is rebuilt from those component parts. But it is not like what it has been. It is new, absolutely new, absolutely new. The early church, through the middle church, uh, tended to view this as a work of recreation, 
where God takes what is and completely breaks it down to its complete foundations, completely breaks it to its component molecules, and then reassembles it, almost Lego style. Um, Eusebius. Like a cloak, everybody grows old with time. But although it grows old, it will be renewed again by your divine will, O Lord. The heavens will not be destroyed, but rather they will be changed into something better. In the same way, our bodies are not destroyed in order to disappear altogether, but in order to be renewed in an indestructible state. Paul uses language like that at the resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you have the former body and you have the latter body and the two are connected. But honestly, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't know that because the former body is a body of dishonor. It's a body of weakness. It's a body of, of very passable things. The new body is eternal. It's glorious. It's the difference between an acorn and an oak tree is the difference between the bodies. Well, that's the kind of new that Peter says the next life would be. It's going to be absolutely new. B, there are four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, all of which will be swept away by a great fire. Yet that fire will not devour them all, but only two of them, fire and water, for there will be a new heavens and a new earth after the destruction has passed. Andreas, it is not just we, says Peter, but the whole creation around us also, which will be changed for the better. For the creation will share in our glory just as it has been subjected to destruction and corruptions because of us. Either way, it shares our fate. The resurrection itself, if you are uh, a concrete-minded, unthinking fundamentalist, like we are called to be, um, is an amazing transformation. As Paul said, we go from dishonor to glory. Uh, the early fathers said, this is what's happening here, too. The world is dying. But God promised that creation be eternal, so he's recreating the old out of the new out of the old, but the difference is going to be so different that it's going to be different. A totally, totally new world. And here we could look at the various elements that we find in other places, things like no sickness, no death, no crying, no sorrow, no betrayal, no, uh, no sin at all anymore. I mean, uh, the Bible presents the coming world as being almost indescribable for someone who's in this world. We are like twin babies in the womb talking to one another. I'm positive they can't do that, but bear with me. <coughs> Two twin babies talking in the womb. What do you think it will be like when we experience this thing called birth, which we can't describe? Well, I don't know. I mean, if we think about it, I'm betting that there's a lot more water that we can swim in. And I'm betting that the umbilical cord that feeds us will be far longer. And we will finally be able to determine 
with our very own eyes whether there really is a bomb, I think. But I can't really tell you it's so different from what we're experiencing. Well, the difference between being in the womb and being here is nothing compared to the recreated order. It is new heavens, new earth, and it's where righteousness dwells. Dwells. Here, righteousness is at most very fleeting. The only time righteousness has actually dwelt among us was for a very brief time when God was in flesh and he tabernacled among us. Today, righteousness blazes briefly and weakly here, and then it goes out and it blazes here, and then it goes out. It's like a flitting candle, but then it will dwell forever. It has found its home in the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth. Peter's stinger, the whole point of this passage, is the question, since these things will be dissolved, what kind of person ought you to be? It's a very valid question. Everything is going to be destroyed. The earth and the works thereof. Don't miss that last part. Not only is the earth going to undergo this incredible transformation, but literally every work that has ever been worked, every evidence of every effort is going to be transformed into this new creation. Peter says, being that that's the case, what kind of person ought you to be? As post-millennial Christians and uh, Reformed Congregationalists are the only Reformed denomination whose confession makes post-millennial confessive, if that's a term. Um, we don't really like to hear that. We like to hear God has called us to build the kingdom. God has called us to build up monuments to his glory. We are to build great families. We are to build institutions. All of this is for the glory of God. We don't want to be defeatist. Uh, why, Peter, are you telling us that all the works in the world, literally, that's his language, all the works of every person, everywhere, every when, is going to golden smoke. Why are you telling us this? Well, the grand majority of the evangelical church thinks it believes it knows why Peter's telling us this. Their answer, and I'm going to put words in their mouth, they would not say it this way, um, I'm being snarky, so, so interpret as you will. But the grand majority of the evangelical church today says, look, it's very obvious what Peter means. Everything's going to burn, so why bother? I mean, honestly, everything in this world is going to totally burn, so you should not really fight or strive or build or create. Why would you do that? It's all going to burn. Is that 
what the apostle says? Well, if you look at it, it's hard to get off what Peter is saying, a complete defeatism. Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? And that's an active term. And then he describes certain ways of being that require effort. Since these things are going to be dissolved, what matter of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Holy conduct is things you do. There is nothing in scripture that calls us to be like Taoists. A Taoist believes that the Tao, which is the eternal principle, passes through creation all the time, and it's like a sledge that crushes everything in its way. Great empires today disappear into the dust, and no one knows them tomorrow. Those people who have gotten five degrees in academics and have been, quote, somebody, uh, four generations from their death, nobody remembers them. Um, the, the Tao sweeps away everything in front of it, and so the Taoist does say the very best way to live is to not really care, to, to try to stay out of the Tao's way, to not do anything great, to not use effort. Uh, the best life is the most passive life you can get. But Peter says you are to have holy conduct. You are to engage in godliness. Both of those things take real effort. Godliness means rather than getting out of the way of the eternal principle, it means very much being in the way of the eternal principle because the eternal principle is God. If you are godly, you are like God, you are with God, you are following God, where God is going, you are going. And so that doesn't sound that passive. That doesn't sound like I am simply waiting for a, uh, a, a bivouac off the earth. Nothing to do here but wait. God will take us up. Don't do anything. In fact, the third is kind of the clincher. What kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So Christian, the apostle just said, you are going to be looking for the day of God. Okay, that's pretty obvious. But you're also going to be hastening it. Now, what do you do with that? Hastening the day of God? Hasn't God set his time? Doesn't God move when God wants to? Isn't God completely free? Well, yes to all those things. But God uses means... And we are told that we will, in the hand of God, be part of his means to hasten this day forward. In fact, we are told further in verse 9 and 10, I believe, that God is patient, quote, towards us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, which is a reference to the gospel being placed into the hands of the believers. 
The gospel is carried by disciples into the world. It's a reference to the active evangelism of the world. Um, Peter is not jumping topics. He is picturing that God uses disciples to bear the gospel into all the world. And so Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be actively hastening the day of God, bringing forth the gospel? God is patient, not wanting any to perish. Uh, you are to be very active. But he does talk about the entire world being destroyed and every work in it. So where does that leave us? Well, it's true that every work is going to vanish. Every great company will vanish. Every institution and monument of men will vanish. Every honor, every achievement, every great victory will vanish. But what happens in time does echo in eternity. Jesus, in one of his parables, talked about an unjust steward who had been stealing from his boss, and he got caught, and he got kicked out, and he thinks to himself, okay, what can I do? I don't want to, uh, I, I can't live with, with being a, a laborer. I don't want to do that. So he took the money he had taken from his boss, and he gave it to people effectively and letting them write their bills lower uh, so that they would like him and he would build up relationships with them because then he could go work for them. And you're shocked at Jesus' parable because, like, how can you commend somebody like that? But, he, but God says, Christ says, there's a principle here I do commend, and that is you use the things of this life to make disciples, which you will meet again in the next life. That's literally what he says. You use the temporary things now to build the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God in its eternal form is in the eternal state. The only things that will eternally last are the souls of men and the word of God. Everything else goes through a transformation. And what that transformation looks like is beyond our ability to know, but it's the home of righteousness, so it's absolutely what we want. And we are to hasten the day of God by participating with God, bringing that forward. We are to be very active. But the works that we do should be works that will echo in eternity. There will be a day when this pulpit won't be silent, but somebody else will be talking from it. And every word I have ever said will ultimately be forgotten. It will be as if I never lived. No one will remember Pastor Westbrook at all. But what I am doing now will echo in eternity. I am training you in the gospel. I am discipling you. You are using your spiritual gifts to reach the world in, in many ways. 
the monuments, the companies, the efforts, the evangelism, the godly families, all of that will echo in eternity because it will reach the souls of men. It will model the word of God. It will, it will matter in the next world, even though there will come a time in this world where I will not, and you won't. It still remains true that it is far more possible to be too earthly-minded to be heavenly good than it is to be heavenly-minded so no earthly good. It's possible, I guess. But Peter calls us to ask the question, this thing I am building, this work I am working, this drive that I am driving, will it echo in eternity? Is it a matter of godliness? Is it something that will, quote, hasten the coming of the day of God? What kind of persons ought you to be? You have a brief amount of time in this world, and God uses means, he chooses to use you. Is your life, as Paul would put it, worthy of the calling you have received? Clock's ticking. Your eternal life may not be on the line, but the question is still utterly sobering. What type of persons ought you to be? That is one of those questions you ought to ask yourself upon waking. Today, what kind of person should I be? I will interact with a world that is very solid and very complex. There are prizes to be won. There are battles to be won or lost. It will seem also very significant, and it can be, but it is all going to burn. What kind of person ought you to be? Before we close our passage, we do have to look at two verses that are nevertheless used very problematically at times. It's verse 8 and 9, and they don't actually go along with the flow of my sermon, but they need addressing. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you are a Darwinist, you adore the first verse. And if you are an Arminian, you adore the second one. Darwinists love Peter's quote of the Psalms, and that's what it is. Peter is quoting the Psalms. And he says, Beloved, to God, a thousand years may be like a day, and a day may be like a thousand years. And so they spin it and say, look, God says he created in, a, in, in six days, but, you know, a day can be to God like a thousand years, so how do we know it's not 45 billion years? God is timeless. Time doesn't mean anything to God. 
doesn't say time doesn't mean anything to God. It's the perception of God. God is eternal. And the weight of one day may outweigh a thousand years. There was a day some 2,000 years ago where the Son of God died on Calvary. Consider that day and its value compared to the next thousand years. In the entirety of the thousand years, do those thousand years hold anything of value that compares to six hours on one Friday? The answer is no. The cross of Christ is far more valuable to God than the next thousand years. God may work what he wants to work over a thousand years. He may work it in one day. God isn't getting older. He isn't dealing with time. God perceives time in this way. It doesn't say that God talks this way. Or that when God says, on day one, this happened, and we are to understand, well, it's some undetermined amount of time. That's really word games. That's all that is. It's a desire to squeeze Darwinism into the text, and it really doesn't have anything to do with what Peter's talking about. The other one, if you're an Arminian, you say, Pastor Westbrook, you just said, Peter says that you will hasten the day of God. You will go out and you will evangelize. Uh, doesn't that mean that God has put the salvation of the world in your hands? If you don't speak the gospel, if you're not faithful, well, your neighbors will be lost. It totally depends upon you to hasten the day of God. See, we Calvinists read that, and it does hit us a little odd, and we have to kind of figure out what it means. And Arminian thinks he already knows what that, is, that, that means. The salvation of everybody you know is totally on your shoulders. Ben, everybody that you know, whether they go to heaven or hell, it totally depends on you. And if you screw up, it's not going to happen, right? I was going to say, that, that is a burden no human being can lift. Salvation is of the Lord. The issue is not that God is dependent on us. The issue is that God uses us. And thanks be to God, that's true. No man, says the Apostle Paul, is equal to the task of ministry in any way. Ministry is bringing the grace of God to bear on other human beings, and there is not one descendant of Adam who in themselves can bear that crushing weight. But God, in his grace and providence, through the Holy Spirit, through the gifts of the Spirit, through the Word of God working in us, God uses us to hasten the coming day of God. I would tremble if the Armenians were correct. And well, I should. <laughs>